Okay, all right, let's go. Last Sunday evening, we uh, took a message, we think we called it Answers to Hard Questions, and we said that very often whenever people, either in work or among your neighbors, they find out that you are a believer, uh, and you try to strike up a conversation and you're trying to steer it towards a spiritual conversation, uh, then very often uh, they ask you questions or make comments. And we talked about some of those last Sunday evening, uh, like, if there is a God, why does he allow suffering? If God is love, how can he send anyone to hell? Why are there so many religions? Surely they all can't be wrong. And there's absolutely nothing beyond the grave. When you're dead, you're dead, that's it. Or, who made God? So tonight... We want to continue in that theme because often these roadblocks and stumbling blocks prevent people from exploring the claims of Christ and Christianity uh, a little bit more than what they should. And so here tonight are uh, a couple more. And we'll take longer within the first one in a very, very short space of time for the second one, all right? In case you get worried after the first one. Well, we'll see what the, how the time goes. I'm looking at the timer. Okay, that's the old enemy up there, but we'll have to keep an eye on him. So here's the question tonight. I'm not sure. Well, it's not a question, it's a comment. I'm not sure what to believe anymore. I'm not sure what to believe anymore. And sometimes this would come from a person who either has been interested in spiritual things or perhaps is still interested in spiritual things, but they're confused. They've heard so many interpretations of the Bible. They see so many denominations and so many religions, and they're wondering who's right, who's wrong. I'm just totally confused. I don't know what to believe anymore. And then maybe they think back to their Sunday school days, and they're wondering, were those accounts really real? Did those things in the Bible that we were taught, did they actually happen? Was Jonah really swallowed by a big fish? I mean, is that possible? And so they begin to think these things. And then they might be wondering, are those stories, are they just stories with spiritual meanings? But we really can't pay too much attention to them. Can I trust the Bible? Or, or is the Bible just, <laughs> is it just a, a whole lot of stories put together, uh, but you can't really trust them? They're just something that's made up by man. You know, every culture's got its hand-me-down stories. Why should the Bible be any different? So maybe they're just stories handed down, but you really can't put much weight in. They're not something that you can totally and, and completely trust. Because there's those who say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions, it's full of mistakes and errors, and you really can't put any weight in it. So is that right? What about us tonight? What do we believe? Can we really, really trust the Bible completely and in its entirety? Is it full of mistakes and contradictions? Is it only hand-me-down stories and folklore with a kind of a spiritual twist at the end? Is that all that it is, or is it much, much more than that? 
that unless you and I are convinced of the authenticity of the Bible, unless we're convinced, we are never going to convince other people. And there are people out there, good people, curious people, searching people, thinking people, and, and they're looking for answers, and, and they're hoping that they could trust the Scriptures. They're hoping that what they have read and what they have heard is actually true, that it's something you can believe in and you can put your full life and trust in, and they're looking for somebody to give them some confidence in the Scriptures. Well, if that is the case, where do you start? What food for thought would you give them? If they said to you tonight, listen, I want to believe the Bible. I would love like, you to really believe that it's true, but I've heard so many things to the contrary. I, I just don't know what to believe anymore. I used to think, yeah, that must be true, but I'm not sure anymore. Can you help me? What would you say? How would you answer that? Well, first of all, you could say that the Bible is inspired. You could say that. The Bible is inspired. That term is only found once in Scripture. Second Timothy 3.16, you know it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now, he or she may think when you say the Bible is inspired, they may take that word and think about it in terms that everybody thinks about it today. You know, somebody is a, a wonderful composer or writer or playwright or inventor. They come up with some brilliant idea and we say, boy, they were really were inspired. But that's not what the Bible means whenever it talks about being inspired. That's what we think that it means, but it isn't. And so whenever we talk about the Bible being inspired, the word inspiration here means God breed. Theonustos. God breed. Nustos is where we get pneumatic from. God breathed. The, the equivalent in the Latin is inspiro, to breathe into. So what we're saying is the Bible is different than, say, William Shakespeare. There's no question that William Shakespeare was a fantastic writer. Great creative mind and imagination. Could write some tremendous stuff that's still being played to this very day after so many years, what, hundreds of years. But John Calvin had just called that common grace that God gives to every man, every woman, certain gifts and talents and abilities and they can use them as they will, for good or for ill. But nothing that William Shakespeare wrote was God-breathed. It came from his imagination, and it was wonderful, and people enjoy it, but it's not God-breathed. God, God had something to say to this world that would have eternal content, eternal consequences for everyone. And so when it comes to the Word of God, God is very much involved. It's God-breathed. It wasn't just men just randomly thinking things of the top of their head and just writing it down. And this is why uh, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, 
For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now that's okay for you and me. But if you say that to an unbeliever, they may say, well, well, hold a minute, that's too theological for me. That's way over my head. And for many of them, it probably is. If somebody had told me that years ago, it would probably been over my head too. And I'd probably say, well, very good. You believe that, that's okay, but I'm not too sure. Sounds very theological to me. And so perhaps it would be better, first of all, to come at it this way where you could tell them that the Bible is a collection of many books by many writers written over many years, and yet it's got a central theme that runs from cover to cover. It's a complete whole. If, if I can modify C.W. Slemming's statement about this, where he said, imagine if you put together in one volume such books as the Magna Carta, say, the history of Plato, the songs of Wesley, the writings of Karl Marx, the religion of Buddha, the theories of George Bernard Shaw, and the prophecies of Nostradamus. Imagine if you could put all that into one book. Would it make any sense? Would there be a flow in it? Would there be one theme running through it? Absolutely not. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And yet, in one volume we call the Bible, we have the Law of Moses, the History of Israel, the Psalms of David, the writings of the prophets, the gospel of Jesus, the theology of Paul, the revelation of John, and all together they form a perfect harmonious whole with that theme running throughout the whole book. It makes it different than any other book there is on earth tonight. The Bible contains 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written by 40 different men and women, over a period of some fifteen to 1,600 years, uh, written by people mostly who've never met each other in different generations, in different countries, in different continents. Some were written from a prison cell. Some from a penal colony. At least one from a penal colony, John's Revelation. Some are written in Palestine, Babylon, Egypt, Persia, Asia, Europe, Patmos, Rome, all over. They're different generations by mostly people who never knew each other. And even the way that it's written is different. Job was a very wealthy farmer. And he wrote differently than Amos who was a very poor farmer. And he was a prophet. Paul was a highly intellectual, academic, and theologian. And he writes very differently than John or Peter, who were fishermen. And in this book you have poetry and prophecy and history and philosophy, and yet it's all crafting the same story. And so it's, it's a miracle. It really is. And whenever we say it's God-breathed, you're beginning to see what we mean by that. God sovereignly, providentially brought all of these things together through men and through women. And we say he breathed it. Oftentimes, they had no idea what they were writing, that it was God who was prompting them. 
But he was. Other times they knew absolutely God was prompting them, and he was. But in his providence, he put it all together, and he gives us this marvelous book. Now, indeed, it is an ancient book. And because it is an ancient book, and it wasn't just handed down orally, but it was written down. And somebody could say, well, would not leave it open to mistakes and contradictions and errors and typos and all the rest of it. Well, that's a good point, isn't it? Because the fact of it is, we do not have any original manuscripts, manuscripts in existence. We don't have them. Because the material they were written on uh, wasn't able to last and they had to keep copying and copying and copying. So isn't that open to mistakes and contradictions and so forth? Well, here's a fact. Actually, the copies that we have of Scripture, whether of whole Scriptures or partial Scriptures, they far, far exceed all the copies of ancient writings, of the Greek writers and the Greek philosophers. Far, far exceed them because of the many that we've got. And God has gone to tremendous lengths in His providence, tremendous lengths to make sure that they were preserved accurately and authentically during the copying process. Now this is important because God was in this. And there has never been any other ancient writings ever dealt with in this way because God wanted to make sure that what he said was passed down accurately, authentically to every generation. For example, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. On average, it took scribes 15 years to meticulously copy them. Each letter, not just each word, but each letter, like A or B or C, each letter was checked from five scrolls. <clears throat> and then after that was done, three more years were spent by other scribes checking every single word and letter out of necessary making corrections or destroying it it had to be. The Talmud says that the parchment had to be made from the skin of a clean animal prepared by a Jew only and must be fastened by strings from clean animals. Each column must have no less than 48 or more than 60 lines. The ink must be of no other color than black, had to be prepared according to a special recipe. No word or letter could be written from memory. The scribe must have an authentic copy before him, and he had to read and pronounce aloud each word before writing it. He had to reverently wipe his pen each time before writing the word for God. He had to wash his whole body before writing the sacred name Jehovah. One mistake on a sheet condemned the sheet. If three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. Every word and every letter was counted. And if a letter were omitted, 
or a letter inserted, an extra letter inserted, or if one letter touched another, the manuscript was condemned and be destroyed at once. The old rabbi gave the solemn warning to each young scribe, take heed how you do your work, for your work is the work of heaven, lest you drop or add a letter of a manuscript and so become a destroyer of the world. The scribe was also told that while he was writing, if even a king would enter the room and speak to him, the scribe was to ignore him until he finished the page he was working on, lest he make a mistake. In fact, some texts were actually annotated. That is, each letter was individually counted. Thus, in copying the Old Testament, they would note the letter Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it occurred 42,377 times. The letter Beth, 38,218 times, and so on and so on. According to Westcott and Hort, the points in which we cannot be sure of the original words are microscopic in proportion to the bulk of the whole. Some one in 1,000 letters, that means. So only one letter out of 1,580 in the Old Testament is open to question, and none of these uncertainties would change in the slightest any doctrinal meaning whatsoever. Fifteen hundred years after Herodotus wrote his history, there was only one copy left in the entire world. 1,200 years after Plato wrote his classic, there was only one manuscript. Today there exists but a few manuscripts of Sophocles and Virgil and Cicero. And yet, we have more Bibles than we can count. You see, God had a vested interest in making sure that what we got was authentic and real and trustworthy and you could count on it. Now, in 1947, a young shepherd boy threw a stone into a cave in Qumram, and he heard a clunk, and there was jars, and there was Hebrew scrolls. And these began to be inspected and they found in these Dead Sea Scrolls, as they became to be known, they found fragments from every Old Testament book in the Hebrew Bible with the exception of Esther. A complete scroll of the book of Isaiah was found. And the reason this find was so very, very important was because the only earliest previous copy they had was made during the 12th century AD. So now they could look back all the way to when Isaiah was living and writing, and they could compare the two. Can you imagine how many copies must have been made? And when they compared the two, they discovered that any errors in letters was so minuscule that it made absolutely no difference whatsoever to the text. And it was amazing discovery. No other ancient manuscripts have this incredible attention to detail. This is the Word of God. And if God breathed this Word, and if God spoke to men, and men were moved by the Holy Spirit 
to write this word, you can be sure God will make sure that the chain down to us will be as authentic as we could get it. Now, I'm not going to talk tonight about all the translations since then, all the, you know, the debates about the NIV and all of that and all the latest ones. Obviously, men are changing things today, so we need to be careful to get back as close as the original as we can. And that's why many times the King James is still treated as one of the best, if not the best, translation. I personally use the new King James just because of the these and the thous. But other than that, it's a wonderful translation indeed. And I was reading just uh, yesterday regarding books that only one half of 1% of all books published survive seven years. That doesn't mean they're not around after seven years. It means nobody's buying them anymore unless they become classics. But generally speaking, only one half of 1% of all books published survive seven years. 80% of all books are forgotten in one year. Now this was written a little time ago. I would say it's even worse today. There's fewer people reading today books than there used to be because of the internet and so forth. So let us imagine that during this year that 200 new books would come out, published. Statistics show that by next year only 40 of those 200 will remain. And at the end of the seventh year, out of the original 200, only one book will survive that people will still be buying. Why do you think bookshops are going out of business today? Because fewer people are reading actual books. Now you can get virtual books on Kindle and the internet and all the rest of it and a lot of that's good. I'm not putting that down in any way. But I'm just telling you as far as actual books is concerned, they don't survive very well. You go into some of those bookshops in Belfast and you look at some of the titles and open them up and look at the dates and some of them, <laughs> they've been lying a long, long time. So they have. But this word, this book, outsells still outsells any other book in history. This book is God-breathed. Now, although the Bible is primarily a spiritual book, and it is, but included in the Bible, of course, are historical things, things that are scientific, astronomical, biological, physics, logic, philosophy, all these things you'll find in the Bible. And I haven't time tonight to go into all of those. So that would take at least another message, maybe three more messages, to unpack all of those things that you can find in the Bible that are scientific statements. Now, here's the thing. If we can't trust the science and the history and all, if we can't trust any of that, what can we trust? Don't you think that because this is God breathed, don't you think that when God got men to write things, don't you think that what they wrote was accurate and was real? And when you look at some of the astronomical statements and some of the scientific statements, which we can't tonight, it is amazing how long science took to catch up on the Word of God. Amazing. Hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. And yet it was all there in Scripture. And so commenting on all those would take a very, very long time indeed. And so this is a, a tremendous 
book that you hold in your hand tonight. Voltaire, the French writer and essayist and philosopher, he once said, 12 men started Christianity, but one man will destroy it, and I will be that one man. Within a hundred years, only a few Bibles will be found in museums. A hundred years passed. And at a Paris auction, his entire writings, 91 volumes of his works, were sold for 50p. On the same day, the British Museum bought a portion of the Bible, the Codex Sani Atticus, for a quarter of a million pounds. Just a portion, which was a record for any literature to be sold at that time. Thomas Paine, an infidel, once said, I've gone through the Bible as a man would go through a forest with an axe to fell trees. I have cut down tree after tree. tree. Here they lie. They will never grow again. <laughs> Thomas Paine thought he had demolished the Bible. But since he crawled into a drunkard's grave in 1809, the Bible has leapt forth stronger, stronger than ever before. Joseph Stalin, the bloody butcher, of Russia, came to power in the 20s after Lenin. One of the first things he did was he instituted a ban the Bible purge all over Russia. Burned them, banned them. Wanted to wipe God and God's word from the memories of his citizens. Did he succeed? Did it work? Apparently not, because recently, and we heard this just not so long ago from a brother who takes Bibles into Russia every year. He said the last time he was there recently, the Russian government said they wanted to put Bibles into schools to teach their kids morality. Not religion, but morality. So after all that Stalin did, and he's dead and gone, in the dustbin of history, and whether it's Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens or Professor Ron Jones or whoever these new atheists are that come up and deny God and denounce God and, and, and dispute the Bible and say it's rubbish and it's fairy tales and fables, one day their voices will be stilled and the Bible will still be going on because this is God's Word. The Word of the Lord endureth Forever, the Bible says, and it does. It was once said that a socialist stood up in a soapbox in London and he pointed to an old ragged bagger and he proudly announced, socialism will put a new set of clothes on that old man there. He stepped off his box and a Christian got up. And the Christian proudly announced, the Bible will put a new man on that old set of clothes there. <laughs> And that's what the Bible does. It puts a new man on us, doesn't it? The truths of the Word of God are absolutely wonderful. And so here is a book that you can absolutely count on. It's genuine. It's real. And God has taken the utmost care to give it to us today so that we can live our lives by it and upon it.
Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. And if Jesus said that, you can be sure that's true, isn't it? No matter what the naysayers say, the Bible is the word of God. Now, all of that, for those whom you may be speaking to, all of that is a head issue. I don't know what to believe anymore. I'm confused. A head issue. So you're trying to sort out their thinking. You're trying to get them to think right and to think along the lines where they begin to look at the Bible perhaps with new eyes and a new appreciation and say, well, yeah, maybe if, if hey, maybe, maybe this is true after all. I better have a second look. But here's the fact of it is that most people that you will talk to, it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. Most people, it's a heart issue. It's a lifestyle issue. They will deny the Bible, they will deny God, they will deny Christ, not because they can't believe, because they don't want to believe. Not because of confusion in the head, but because of rebellion in the heart. Because there's something in their lifestyle that they do not want to surrender or change. And they know if they come to Christ, there's going to be a big question mark over some areas of their life. And that's the truth. And I'll prove it to you from Scripture. In Mark chapter 10... And you know the story well enough. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So here's a young man who was respectful. He was spiritual who thought about spiritual things, who thought about eternal life, who thought about the next life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. That is, no one is good but one that is God. So Jesus is making sure, do you really know who you're talking to here? You've asked a very important question. So listen up. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. So Jesus reams off half a dozen commandments. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus didn't deny it. Didn't say, oh really? No, he believed him. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Said to him, one thing you like. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at his word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. A heart issue. A lifestyle issue. He had great possessions. And those great possession, possessions 
had entangled themselves around his heart to the point where he didn't want to let go. And Jesus knew that. It wasn't a head issue, it was a heart issue with him. And as much as Jesus loved him, he put his finger right on the spot because he knew what was holding him back. And it was a heart issue, it was a lifestyle issue. Didn't want to change his lifestyle. Didn't want to give any of that up. Perhaps if he had said to the Lord, do you know what? I'll give all of that away. It doesn't mean any more to me. Maybe the Lord would have said to him, do you know what? Just keep it and just bless people wherever you can. I just wanted you to see your heart. But we don't know that. Didn't say that. What we do know was he went away very sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now this shocked the disciples. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's a heart issue. It's a lifestyle issue. And oftentimes when people try to put you off and try to poo-poo the Bible and say, I'm not sure if God exists and all that stuff. And sometimes they're genuine, they're confused. But sometimes when you scratch the surface and when you give them the answers and you say, here's why I believe the Bible's true and you tell them what I told you or roughly that and say, now what do you think? You start to scratch the surface. You'll find it's not that. It's the heart. It's the heart. There's something in their lives that they're not willing to lay down and surrender to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm willing to change. And they're maybe thinking, do you know what? If I become a Christian, I'm going to have to change the way I do business. If I become a Christian, the way I do deals at work, I'm going to have to change that because it's not right. And I know it's not right. And I'm going to have to be scrupulously honest about it. But I'm not sure if my business would stand that. And there's many people in that trap. They don't want to surrender that. Zig Ziglar was the top salesman in America in insurance. He's a millionaire. Called upon by the big corporations to come and give motivational seminars. Brilliant communicator. I've heard him in person. Then he became a Christian. I heard him tell this story, actually. Belfast. Remember Amway? Does anybody ever sell Amway anymore? Remember that was the big thing, Amway? So there's a big Amway meeting. I don't know how I got there. Somebody came to the church at that time, gave me a ticket and asked me to come. And I went along just to please them. I'm glad I did go along. I didn't even know this man. I never heard tell of him. Zig Ziglar is a strange name, isn't it? His brother is even a stranger name. He's called Judge Ziglar. Judge Ziglar wrote a book. I thought it was a great title. He was a salesman too. He says, timid salesmen have skinny kids. <laughs> That's a great title, isn't it? <laughs> And so Zig Ziglar said, you know, when I became a Christian, everybody, all my friends, all the people in the business I was in, they all told me, you're finished, Zig. It's over. You can't do it anymore. And he says, well, if, that's, if it's over, it's over, but I'm just going to trust God. Do you know what? He says, my business went through the roof. He says, the more honest I became, the more my business went through the roof. And then they said, 
But you'll not be asked to the big corporations to give the motivational talks because all those off-color jokes you tell, you'll not be able to do that anymore. He says, you're right. Can't do that anymore. Don't want to do it anymore. He says, you know what? I have more invitations than I can fulfill since I stopped telling those off-color jokes. He says, more people wants me than ever before. If people would just trust God, if they would just trust the Lord and give up what needs to be given up. And this was the problem with a rich young ruler. He wasn't prepared to give up and to give to the Lord. Come with me to John 4. We're just about finished here in a moment. Verse 5, John 4, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now here was a hard issue. Prejudice. Bigotry. Racial discrimination. She had a lot of that in her life as a Samaritan. She knew the Jews hated the Samaritans. So this heart issue pops up immediately. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Beautiful, cool, refreshing water. But not the water she was thinking. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? So she's thinking of her head this time. There's a head issue. Can't figure this out. What's he talking about? How is he going to get that? He's no bucket. He's no road. How's he going to get down in this well to get that good living water? Jesus, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's still on her head, isn't she? What Jesus saying sounds very, very odd and very, very strange, and she can't get her head around it, as we say. It's all confused here. What's he talking about? Sounds good, so I'll have some of it, but I don't know how you're going to do it. Then Jesus said to her, now listen. Jesus wanted to get to the heart issue. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. 
in that you spoke truly. Ah, a heart issue. <laughs> and Jesus puts his finger right on it. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. She could not deny it. There was no possible way he knew that except God revealed it. You're a prophet. But then what did she do? What she did next was what people with heart issues do whenever you begin to point the finger at it. When you put your finger on the heart issue, here's what they do. They try to change the tune. She became all religious. She said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Well, you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. See, he's getting to the heart issue. Which is the worship of the true living God. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now notice how the woman tried to deflect him. And when you're talking to somebody and it becomes a heart issue, I almost guarantee you nine, nine times out of a hundred, they'll try to put you off. And they may even become all religious in their talk just to put you off. Exactly what she did with Jesus. And then she says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am um, he. Huh. Now what are you going to do about it? Well, you get right down to the question, the nub of the question, I am he. What are you going to do about it? Now he didn't say those words. But in a sense, that's what's implied. What are you going to do about it? And sometimes in our conversations with people, when a heart issue comes up or a lifestyle issue, this woman had a big lifestyle issue. Try to deflect it. When you get through all of that and you get right down to facing, hey, the Lord says, what are you going to do about this? That's when it's make your mind up time, isn't it? And thankfully for this lady, thankfully, she made her choice. And she went into the city. And it's interesting what she said. She says, come see a man who told me all things, whatever I did. Is this not the Christ? Hmm. So people will try to put off making the big decision the way that most of us did in our early lives before we became believers. And for most of us, it was a hard issue. It was a lifestyle issue. And we had to make up our minds, what are we going to do? Whenever the Lord cornered us as his were and put the spotlight on us and we had nothing to hide behind anymore, and it was decision time, and that's the place we got to. 
Well, the Holy Spirit just came in and convicted us and exposed us for what we were before a holy God. We had to hold our hands up and admit we're sinners, we're lost, we're undone, and we need saved, and we need a Savior to save us. And thankfully, we did that. Amen? Amen. Thankfully. God in his mercy saved us. So there's all kinds of reasons why people will not come to Christ. All kinds of excuses are made, and there's many, many more than I shared tonight and last Sunday night. But a lot of them is easy answered. But when it comes down to a heart issue, that's the tough one. Because no matter what you tell them, and no matter how you come at it, they're the ones that's got to make up their mind. They've got to decide. But it's good when you get somebody to that position. Because then the Holy Spirit can really, really work in their hearts and begin to prick it and prod it. And hopefully come to saving faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight that you were generous in mercy towards us. Thank you, Lord, for all that time that you strove with us. Giving us time to come to that place of repentance. We thank you that by your Spirit, you gave us the strength to repent. And to say, sorry, Lord. I'm a sinner and I need saved by your grace. So we thank you for this, Lord. And help us with those that we meet, or our loved ones, or friends, acquaintances. Lord, help us to understand that very often it's that heart issue. So that the Holy Spirit can confront that. And begin to convict and convince. We thank you for the integrity, the authenticity of your word that never fails. We bless you, Lord, that all the words of men will pass away, but this word will never pass away. We thank you for it. Help us, Lord, to live our lives by it. Help it to be the rock that we stand on the anchor that keeps us. So we give you thanks tonight for this. In Jesus' name, amen.